One Hope Church. Better? Good morning, everyone. Ready for 2 Samuel chapter 12. Um, and we're going to hop right into that this morning. So just to give a little bit of context, um, up until chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, it can well be argued that David was a righteous man. Not perfect, but righteous. 1 Kings 15, chapter chapter 15, verse 5 says, Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. So up until that point, and even after this point, David is, is considered righteous in what he has done in, the, in the, the, the general perspective of his life. And we, see that we saw that throughout his, his life as we've been studying it. Um, in chapter 3 of 2 Samuel, we saw David weep over the fact that Joab and Abishai had taken unrighteous vengeance on Abner for killing their brother Asahel in, in battle. David said in 2 Samuel 3.39, And I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the son of Zeruiah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. And then we see, unfortunately, that David has now become the evildoer by committing adultery with Bathsheba and by having Uriah the Hittite killed in battle. Both of these were premeditated sins. You know, and premeditation is an important distinction when it comes to sin. Like this, to sin is, is, is bad. To contemplate sinning and then to fulfill it is even worse. God understands there's a distinction between those, those things. So what he had done is premeditated. And last week we left off with God's perspective on the situation at the end of chapter 11. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. David may have thought that he had generally gotten away with it. But God sees all. Let's, let's pray. And we'll read um, beginning of chapter 12. So Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word and that it is truth. We thank you, God, that you are just, that you see everything, that your understanding and your ways are higher than ours. Help us to be humble before you as we um, approach your scripture this morning. Help us to learn from it, to be taught by it. Lord, we're thankful um, for what we have to learn from you this morning. Thank you that you love us, dear God. And you prove that by sending your son Jesus to the cross in our place. We thank you, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city. 
one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the traveling man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore full fold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. <clears throat> now Nathan is bold as he comes and, and delivers this message to the king, but he's wise in this story that he tells, and he sets up this contrast between a rich man who has all of these animals and this poor man who has this one little animal and doesn't treat it just like an ordinary little lamb, but treats it special, as a special pet, like a daughter, eating from his own hand, lying with him. Um, you know, caring for this little animal. And then the traveler comes. Hospitality was expected. Hospitality was, um, it was an expected part of the culture. And it was really a required thing. You know, if someone came from traveling for a distance, you had a responsibility to take care of that person because when you traveled on a distance, for a distance, other people would have the responsibility to take care of you. And so it was a reciprocal Thing. But this rich man, being greedy and being, being evil, will not use one of his own lambs, but goes and robs the poor man. Takes his lamb, you know, using his position, using his power, using his authority, and steals from the poor man and takes and kills that little precious lamb. And you see David's heart, and he is rightly angry. He's angry, he says... This man deserves to die. But David knows that that's beyond the law, the law of Moses. But it is right that the man would pay and that he would pay fourfold. It's really interesting that when people are in sin... They don't see their own sin. But they can still see the sin of other people. You know, we see this in our world all the time. You go on Facebook, you can go any message board, you see people all riled up about anything, but will refuse to go to their own mirror and look and ask, what sin do I have? What, where am I? You know, people will... We say this is inju you know injustice, 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 but we'll ignore the injustice that they are committing every day. Every day, you'll have the boss that sees a particular work situation in another company or another organization and going, you know, shouldn't be doing that. They're treating their employees really bad, but then go and ask their employees. How does your boss treat you? 
It's easy to see the sins in others. It's hard to see the sins in ourselves because we're blinded to them and because we, reality is we just don't want to see them. We don't, and, and you generally don't see what you don't want to see. Generally don't see what you don't want to see. David proclaims that the rich man is guilty, that he deserves punishment. The Hebrew literally means you know, a son of death. This man is a son of death. That um, you know, Some of your translations will say he shall surely die. Others say he deserves death. But perhaps son of death is a better understanding as David saying that this man is full of violence. You see that David is, is emotional about this lamb. But he also understands that man didn't actually deserve the death penalty. He knew the law of Moses. Exodus 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Or a shep, if you're going singular. No, just funny Englishing. Four sheep for a shep. But you can remember this this principle. Um, you know, it's even understood in the New Testament context. What does Zacchaeus say? As when he became a follower of Jesus, he was a tax collector, and he had gotten really wealthy by overcharging. And he said, anything that he had taken, you know, unjustly, he would repay fourfold. That's where that concept comes from. Back in the Law of Moses. Zacchaeus knew that, and it's interesting that when he came to, to know Jesus, then he wanted to do what was right, and he wanted to make up for what he had done. So when somebody really comes to know Jesus, they admit their sin, and they want to change. There is no real coming to Jesus without an admitting to sin, and then a desire to live life in a different way. Now, we might, a person comes to Jesus, they might not fully understand all the things in their life that are going to have to change. There's a progressive revelation in their life as God doesn't give us more than we can handle at one time, but exposes more and more, peels back the layers of our sinfulness. But it's impossible for a person to come to Jesus without admitting that they're sinful, that they need a Savior. Because why would you come to Jesus if you didn't need a Savior and didn't need a King? need a savior, need a king, and need to change. So in Zacchaeus, we see the evidence that he really followed Jesus because of his heart to give back what he had stolen and to do so more than he had given, more than he had taken. Sorry, he wanted to give back more than he had taken. He wanted to do justice in the situation. This is the heart of people who've truly come to know God. There's evidence. And when there is no life change, when there's no evidence, I mean, God knows the heart, right? But if you don't see, if there's nothing there, then it's right to question, did you really come to know Jesus? Because you can come to Jesus as you are, but you can't stay as you are. So we say, come as you are, is true gospel. But Jesus will not leave you where you are. He will change you radically. 
And those who do not want to be changed cannot come to Christ. It's reality. But now listen, verse 7 is Nathan. See, prophets have to be bold because they have to speak truth to power and they have to be willing to die. Prophets have to be willing to die. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. The Lord states clearly that it was David who had killed Uriah. It was David's responsibility to protect Uriah as much as humanly possible. But instead, he used the people of Ammon to kill Uriah. See, even though David was king, he was still under the law of Moses. He was still under the law of you shall not commit adultery. He was still under the law of you shall not murder. And he had an obligation with the responsibility he had as king to do more than just not murder Uriah. He had a responsibility as king to do everything in his power to protect Uriah. That yes, there was a certain danger in battle. But he was never to put his men in unnecessary harm. In the way of unnecessary harm or danger. He was never to do that. God takes that responsibility to protect life very seriously. A perfect example of that is in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. It says, when you build a new house, then you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring guilt of bloodshed on your household if anyone falls from it. So that parapet is, a, is like a half wall or a railing around the perimeter of a flat roof to prevent anyone from falling off. You see, if somebody fell off your roof... You couldn't just say, well, you know, a person should have been more careful. You would still have their blood on their hands if you hadn't taken the necessary precaution to build a proper railing, to build a proper or a proper half wall around the perimeter that would, you know, help that sort of thing not to happen. And so there was a responsibility for everybody in that regard to take care of their neighbors and visitors and you know, people coming onto their properties. How much more the king, being responsible for the army, had a responsibility to protect Uriah, but instead uses his position to cover his sin, to particularly put Uriah in the most difficult part of the battle and then to instruct the others to withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. Like, that's about as bad as it gets in terms of a premeditated murder. You can't get more premeditated than that. You can't get more of an abuse of power than that. It's, I mean, it's bad. 
But Nathan says to the one who has already abused his power and had someone killed, you are the man. You are the one. You are, what he's saying there is, you are the rich man who has taken the poor man's lamb and slaughtered it. Like, that's who you are in the story. That's bold. That's bold. You know, a lot of times we're afraid to tell truth to people that actually can't do anything to harm us. They can only get mad at us. Or they can, they can call you a name. And, and we'll shrink back from that. We're afraid somebody... We'll, We'll shrink back because we're afraid somebody's not going to like us. As something as small as that. Like, how, how are you going to take a prophetic role if you're even, uh, you know, won't take any risk that somebody might get upset if you tell the truth? You really can't. You have to get over that. You have to get over that and say, you know what? <clears throat> if the Lord wants me to tell the truth, I just got to tell the truth. Now, in the context, you do so in the most strategic way. Like, this is a strategic way that he does this. You know, it's interesting Nathan doesn't walk in and go, David, you have... And he presents a story so that David needs to, you know, has to admit his guilt. You got to put, he's trying to put David on the right side of truth so that then David will recognize the lack of truth in his own heart. So there's wisdom in how Nathan does that. He doesn't just come in firing, but he does fire when necessary. I mean, he brings the heat. And we need wisdom in every situation of how to approach it. But our general approach, as we know in the New Testament, we're told to be people of peace and to be people who are gentle. And we want to be as gentle as possible, even when we speak truth to power. But there are times when we just have to stand up and say, no, that's wrong. What, what you're doing is sinful. Particularly with those who claim to be right with God. Because here, Nathan is not talking to an atheist. Nathan is not talking to somebody who worships false gods. Nathan is talking to somebody who knows the truth. And needs to help him to recognize that truth. And listen to this. Verse 10. Nathan's words continue. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me. And taking the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So those are more bold words from, from Nathan. I mean, that's a, you're, you're probably never going to be in a situation where you have to say that to somebody. Just take some solace in that. But God promises David that he's going to have to pay for his sin. His sin is not going to go unpunished. That he is going to reap what he has sowed. 
And there's something about you know, that principle of reaping and sowing. You know, when you reap, when you sow good seed, right, it comes back to you in a multiple. It, it's not a one for one. It comes back to you in a, in a, in a multiplied way. Fourfold, tenfold, a hundredfold. When you plant good seed. But when you plant bad seed, it also doesn't come back to you one for one. It comes back fourfold, tenfold, a hundredfold. That's a, that's a biblical principle. What he sows, he shall also reap. But in that sowing and reaping, there's the principle of multiplication. So when you sow good, expect to receive an abundant harvest. But for a person who sows evil, also expect to receive an abundant harvest. It doesn't come back one for one. It's just not how it works. That's not the biblical scriptural principle. And you say, well, that doesn't sound fair. Sounds like I should get one for one. Hey, it can not sound fair to you all you want and not sound fair to you, but that's just the biblical principle of how it is. It's a principle of multiplication. It will be multiplied. And that should give us motivation to sow good and not evil. should be a great motivation. Now this is key in the passage. 2 Samuel 12, 13, the first half of that verse. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, if you've been here for our study of all of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, you'll understand why that's significant. Because there's a great contrast here. Because remember Saul. When Saul was confronted, he always made excuse. But, but, but. But Samuel hadn't arrived yet. But I only did this and that. He always had an excuse for his disobedience. And that was the difference. That's the main difference. And in... Saul's heart and in David's heart. Saul's heart is prideful and it makes an excuse, and David's heart is humble and makes no excuse. And that's a huge difference, and we need to recognize that. We need to recognize that difference and strive to say, Lord, help me always when confronted by sin to not be prideful, to not give excuse, but to own it, admit it, repent of it and to move forward help us to be people like that now our world certainly is not going to teach you that because our world teaches you whatever situation you're in that's somebody else's fault you know a lot of it might be somebody else's fault but God does not let us out of our own personal responsibility he just doesn't so we have to learn not to blame. We, we, we need to learn not to blame and say, well, if my parents had raised me different, then I wouldn't struggle with this sin. Or if my neighbor hadn't have done this against me, or if the church I had grown up in, in hadn't done X, Y, or Z, I wouldn't have this problem. I wouldn't have this struggle. I wouldn't do... We need to stop it. We need to tell ourselves, just stop it. Admit it change, like admit it, repent, means to turn, like change and move forward. I 
I have sinned against the Lord. We don't have time to get into them today, but Psalm 32, Psalm 51, if you're taking notes, many of you know those already, but those are David's psalms of repentance. And in this way, David makes his repentance public. You see, he had probably thought that for the most part he had gotten away with it, that very few people knew what he had done. That very few knew what he had done, that he had largely covered his tracks. But he takes something that was, at least he thought, private, and he makes a public repentance. Now, as I say that, what people think they do in secret, word does travel. And we'll see that here in the second part of verse 13. It says, And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. So we're going to talk about this step by step. But we need to understand that the worst thing, the worst part of what David had done was that he gave opportunity for the enemies of God to blaspheme. Now that could have been unbelievers within Israel, that could be other nations, that could be spiritual forces, you know, powers um, in the heavenly realms. Could be any of those. But we need to understand that when People who say they follow God sin, it, it causes people to blaspheme. It causes people to turn their backs on God. It causes people not to not consider God. If, if people see our lives and we say we follow Jesus and then we do things that are so contrary to that, it causes them to look and go, well, if that's what a follower of Jesus is, then I surely don't want to be one. And it causes people to go as far as to curse God or to not believe that there is a God. Like, that's serious, serious business. And so here, God needs to let all of his enemy knows that he, to, all, the enemy, all of God's enemies need to know that God has seen this, and God does not just swoop it under the rug, but God's going to deal with it. And God, in his wisdom, decides that the best way to handle this is to forgive David, to put his sin away, to not kill David, but that he's going to have to suffer consequence of the child dying and of the other things that have already been mentioned, the sword not leaving his house, and that his wives, and he shouldn't have more than one to begin with, but his wives then being slept with publicly where the whole nation can see. Like Those are some pretty harsh consequences. It's pretty gross stuff. But God's not going to let David just get away with it. For his holiness sake and for his name's sake, he cannot allow that. 
Now, we have to address a couple of issues here because people will use this passage to say, well, God isn't just. God isn't fair. The baby dies, David doesn't. What's going on with that? So we have to, we have to look at a couple of things. Norm, the first thing is this. Normally, when an infant dies, when we see this in Scripture, it's not because of some specific sin that a parent has committed. Now, people have generally thought for generations, you know, when a child, you know, when there was a miscarriage or a child dies um, as an infant or a child is born blind or any of these things, well, the parents must have committed some sin. That's a historical problem. Jesus had to address that. You can read John chapter 9. With a man was blind, and the people said, you know, is he blind because he had sinned or because his parents had sinned? And Jesus says, neither. Um, and so, you know, that has to be addressed. So generally, that's not the case. Now, people might have even misinterpreted this passage and said, and took the specific instance and then said, well, this would happen with David, so then when something like this happens, it must be, and jump to the wrong conclusion. But we know that generally this is, is not the case. But it is the case here. So then the question is, you know, what really happened here is God just? And we have to be, we have to be careful as the little sinful humans that we are um, in how we question God. Okay, that's the start there. Um, but at the same time, we do need to be prepared to give an answer to someone who you would use this passage you know, to, as a reason for their unbelief or to attack our, our faith in God. Um, we need to be able to give a good, a good answer. First thing we acknowledge is that if a human was to give out this type of punishment, we would ar- rightly argue that it's not justice. That little ones should not die for the sins of adults. Okay, we we should have that un- understanding. And I'll just go ahead. And I actually have one plan. This one in my notes. One plan on talking about this part of it. But this happens all the time. You know, on the issue of abortion. When it comes to rape, and people will say, "Well, that's justification for the child to die." But should the child have to pay for the sins of an adult? Should that human life be taken because other, another human has sinned? Well, there are many people um, in our world who have been born as a result of that, and they would say, no, I shouldn't have been the one to die. You know, and the reality as well is people will, will use that case as an excuse to justify all other cases. So that's not good either. But we, we generally agree little ones should not suffer because of the sins of others. Now it's interesting on that issue because People will argue that, 
in the case of abortion and rape. But they certainly wouldn't make that argument after the child was born. There's an extreme lack of consistency there. An extreme lack of consistency. We can point that out in a loving and kind way, but we still have to stand up for what's true. But it is true that the innocent suffer all the time because of the sins of others. This is normal in our experience. That's not so much a matter of justice as a matter of consequence. Just an example, a dad commits armed robbery and he's caught. By committing that armed robbery, he is forsaking his family and his children for years as he spends years in, in prison. The wife and children suffer the consequences even though they were not the ones who committed the sin. That happens all the time. But here, we have to say this situation is different. What I'm trying to do in that case is I'm giving you arguments that work in general, but that argument actually isn't going to work here. You need to understand that. You need to have good arguments. The question that we are presented is God just to take the life of David and Bathsheba's son? Is God just to do that? Now, some theologians will argue that God did not directly kill David and Bathsheba's firstborn, despite the language that says God struck the child. Now, that argument is better than you might initially think. I'm going to talk about that here in a minute. That's argument better than you might actually think it is. But I'm going to say, to begin with, most theologians actually aren't going to try to answer the question. This week I read over 15 commentaries. Ten of them pretended like it wasn't there. They may have said something along the facts of, and the child died. Thanks. We read that in the passage. You know, big help. Um, of the 15, of the five out of the 15 that addressed it, two, I mean, at least took like a, 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 good, a, good, a good try. Two, I would say, that, that, was, that was a pretty weak effort. And one was just plain awful, did more harm than good. The one that talked the most about it was probably the absolute worst, which I guess for the other 10, it's like, hey, if you're going to do that bad of a job, good thing you were silent. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was just terrible. But it's frustrating. Because, I mean, if you're like me, like you have the resources for the stuff that's difficult to figure out, not the obvious, right? So anyway, that's a, that's a whole other point. But that argument that despite the language, God didn't directly kill the child, um, is a better argument to think. First, again, there's perspective. So remember the study of the death of Saul. Saul was shot with arrows by the Philistine archers. He knew that he was as good as dead, but he wanted to shorten his suffering because he knew if he was taken alive that they would torture him before he died. So he falls on his own sword. But the scripture tells us in 1 Chronicles 10, 13, and 14, So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance, but he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, God killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So perspective. 
it's truthful to say the Philistines killed Saul. It's truthful to say Saul killed Saul. And it's truthful to say God killed Saul. Those are all true statements. Okay. It's a matter of what perspective you're looking you know, from, like what's your primary angle there. You're looking at it from God's point of view, from the Philistines' point of view, from Saul's point of view. Saul would have said, I killed myself. They didn't get me. Philistines would have said, no, we got him. And God would have said, actually, I'm the one responsible. Then we have Ezekiel chapter 18. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you, see, when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. What does that proverb mean? The parents eat sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. So what, when you eat something sour, what, you, know, you make a face, right? You're like, Ugh. So, in this case, the proverb is saying the, the, child, the parents eat something sour, the fathers eat something sour, and the children's face pucker. Like, ugh. Like, I don't like that. So it's saying that sin is transferred. That's what that proverb means. And the Lord says, stop using this proverb. And in verse 20, you read all of Ezekiel, of Ezekiel 18, verse 20 says, The soul whose sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Now, so like I said, those are better arguments than you might initially think. But when you take those things into consideration, you go, it's actually not a really bad argument. It's a pretty decent argument. Now, personally, I don't think that argument fully holds in this situation. I think this situation is an exception. The reason I say that is because, again, it does tell us that the Lord struck David's son, and that's the same terminology used, if you remember, Nabal, also in Samuel. You know, so we're continue, you know, continuation of the story. When Nabal was wicked and God struck him, and then days later he died. It's the same type thing. Um, so I can't, I can't make a distinction between those two and say, well, this case is radically different than what happened to, to Nabal. The difference, the difference is Nabal was struck because of his sin. In this case of the child, the child is struck because of David's guilt. The son isn't... We have to make a, also another clear distinction here, and this one's really important. The son is not punished for, for what he has done, but he receives the consequence for what David has done. And there's a difference between punishment and consequence. Punishment is because of your guilt. Consequence can be because of someone else's guilt. So the son receives the consequence. And... I think that the reason that that is is because of David's unique position as the king of Israel. 
that that's why there's an exception here in this case. Why this case is treated differently by God than he treats other cases. Okay. It's because David had given reason for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. I think that's really the key to the whole picture. So that punishment would be more harsh in line with his responsibility. As someone has more responsibility, just like the scripture says, not, let not many of us be teachers, knowing we shall receive a greater condemnation. James chapter 3, that's, even, I mean, that's a New Testament principle. So because of his position, God does treat it differently. We also have to understand another part of this reality, that the child suffered for a short time and then went to be with God. So thankfully, there's, there's not an eternal consequence for this child. There's actually an eternal blessing for this child. The child is with God forever and suffered for a short time. Now, David and Bathsheba had to suffer the pain of that reality for the rest of their time on earth for a much longer period of time. We also have to understand that, again, we are limited in our ability to see. We don't see everything in the situation. And I know for those of us, if you're like me and you, like, you want to solve the puzzle, okay, like, I want to solve the puzzle. Uh, I don't like having a missing piece. I want to solve the puzzle. But when it comes to some of these things, we have to trust that God in his omniscience does what is right. Isaiah 40, 27, 28. Why do you say, O Jacob, and why speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. We have to understand and be humble enough to know that we don't know everything. And that some things God sees, we just, at least for the time being, cannot see. We'll see it as he sees it one day. We'll see as he sees. But if your underlying perspective is that God is just, then we will accept the reality that God knows better than we do. We will trust that he sees what we do not see Perhaps here God sees the child growing up bitter against David, against Bathsheba, against God. Perhaps he's not able to handle the weight of how society is going to look at him. Perhaps here God in his grace and righteousness is more concerned about preserving the child's eternity than his life that would be temporary here anyway. We don't know all the answers to that. But we do believe that God does what is right. God does what is just. And we come to the scripture in a humble way. Now we read verse 16. It says, David therefore pleaded with God, with God for the child... And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. 
And this was right for David to do because even when God pronounces judgment, there are times when people respond in repentance and then God delays judgment or um, changes judgment. There, there are times when we see that in the scripture. So it's right for David to do what he did. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm like, you know, to himself. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead, and therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. It's a powerful passage because we see David doing everything that's in his power to do as he fasts and prays, and that's right. But then when God's judgment has been fulfilled, he doesn't turn and be angry with God. He accepts the punishment he was given. And he worships the Lord, understanding that the Lord is right and just. Now the question, again, that I would have, if this happened to David and he understands the Lord is right and just, far be it from us, who are not David, to then go and argue that God was not just. David understood. And he also had the right perspective. And this verse has been a lot of comfort to those who have lost children. I shall go to him. He shall not return to me. But I shall go to him. And this is also gives us confidence that those who die before they're able to understand the gospel, God is gracious and merciful and they are with the Lord. So we take you know, hope in that. Now, that gives us no right to avoid our duties and responsibility to protect life at all stages. We still have responsibility to do that but we do take some solace and comfort that little ones go to be with the Lord. Just continue on as we finish the chapter. Then David, verse 24, and here again, in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, I mean again, 11 and 12, from the end of 11 to the beginning of 12, there's you know, about nine months there's more than that, because the, then the child is born, and we're not sure exactly how many weeks or whatever the child has been alive before that pronouncement of judgment comes from the prophet. 
Okay, so there's, you know, sometimes things are given, and to us it seems like things are happening very quickly, but there's, there can be days, weeks, months in between verses. Okay, so we need to understand that. So verse 24, Then David comforted Bathsheba's wife and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah means one loved by the Lord. So here we see the grace of God in the lives of David and Bathsheba. They had sinned greatly. They had failed in a massive way. But we need to, um, I think, be encouraged that despite their sin, God was not done with them. His grace was still available in their lives. He would still use their lives for his glory and for his purpose. Now, we do need to remember again, we are under a different covenant than what David was under. Now, David receives grace, I mean, and mercy in tremendous abundance. We receive grace and mercy in tremendous abundance. In that way, the covenants are the same, but also... David, when he committed these high-handed sins, did not have the Holy Spirit indwelling him. In fact, again, as we looked at last week from first of John, first John, book of first John tells us that no one, basically no one who is a believer can commit murder. Like, because you have the Spirit of God within you. Like that's somebody commits murder and says, Well, I'm a follower of Jesus, well, that person is according to 1 John, is lying about their relationship with God. So there, are, there is a line of things that true believers just can't do. There's a line there. But we do also want to be encouraged that though we may fail and fail greatly, that doesn't mean God is done with us. But there does need to be a real change. And David is changed as well after this event. We don't see him continuing on in adultery and, and murder. He, he stops. We don't, we don't see him continue that pattern. Nathan and the prophet having to come to him time and time again about the same thing. No, there's a change in his life. We should expect to see that. Verse 26, Then Joab fought against Rabbah and the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah, and I have taken the city's water supply. And now therefore I gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head. It weighed a talent of gold with precious stones. And it was set on David's head, and also he brought up the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought up the people who were in it, and put them to work with saws and irons and pickaxes, and made them cross over the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. And then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now remember that God had reason to judge um, the Ammonites um, as well. But, you know, it's really interesting as you begin chapter 11 and end chapter 12, 
in at the beginning of chapter 11, you know, David gets himself in all this mess to begin with because he's not where he's supposed to be and he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing as king. This is the time when kings went out to war and David's in his house. So we end chapter 12 with David back where he's supposed to be. Now, Joab has to call him out and say, hey, you know, I'm about to get the credit for all this, so unless you come out here and do your job, which sometimes we need to hear that too, right? Come out here and do your job. If you don't do your job, then you're not going to get to have the joy of having done your job. So... But, but the cool thing there is that David ends up back where he's supposed to be. Um, and it's like back on, on track with his responsibilities. And that's a good thing for us. But it also is a, another important reminder that if we want to... None of us want to experience anything close to what happens in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Well, what's the best way to avoid anything like that happening in your life? Well, to be in a position of victory. To be doing what we are supposed to be doing. To be always at the feet of Jesus and about the mission of Jesus. If we're at the feet of Jesus every day and about the mission of Jesus every day, then we're not going to be sitting there going, man, I, wish I, really, I really wish I hadn't committed adultery. You won't have that to deal with and all that pain and then all that consequences. Because when a, per- you know, when a person commits adultery, they don't just hurt themselves, they also hurt other people. Other people have to live with those consequences. So if you don't want to be on your deathbed going, I will, I wish I hadn't done this or that. Or I wish I hadn't wasted my days. Or I wish I had done more for the Lord. Or I wish, 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 wish. If you don't want that in your life, as a major part of your life, or at the end of your life, well, how do you avoid it? Pretty simple. It's real simple. It's real, real simple. Like the information we all know. Every day at the feet of Jesus... every day about the mission of Jesus. You really can't mess it up like David did here if you're doing that every day. Like if you're consistent. You just can't, you can't be at the feet of Jesus and then, go, and then like later that day go cheat on your wife. Like they just don't work like that. You can't be like, man, I want to tell somebody about Jesus today and then go and do all these terrible things. Like, it doesn't work like that. So I think we have to be honest with ourselves and say, am I really serious about living life in a purposeful way? Am I really serious about not blowing it? Because if I'm really serious about not blowing it, then here are the things that I'm going to do. And I'm not just going to talk about it. It's what I'm actually going to do. So that's, that's just an encouragement and that humbleness. And I, and I would encourage us to literally, 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 spend more time on our faces at the feet of Jesus. Yes, our heart position is what's most important, right? The humble heart, because you can fake anything. But 
there is something about literally getting on your knees and putting your face on the ground and saying, Jesus, you are my Savior and you are my King, and I submit to you. That matters. And I'm not, looking, I'm not asking for that to be a ritual. We're not looking to add a ritual to your life, but a spiritual reality. And I would just argue that if your spiritual reality doesn't cause you at least time to time, but better than just time to time, but at least time to time to to get on your face before God, then what in the Sam Hill is going on? Like, what in the world is going on? If your spiritual reality doesn't put you on your face before God, then, then what's going on in that spiritual reality? And you can ask the same question to me. If you're like, when's the last time you actually got got on your face before God? And I'm like, "Eh, I got to think about that. That's an issue. That's an issue. And some people might say, well, I wasn't raised this way or that way or whatever. And there's other people who are like, well, I was raised where we were forced. We always had to get on our knees or whatever. And I forget all that. Forget all that. And just humble yourself before the Lord. And encourage me to do the same. Because that's what we need, is spiritual reality. If we're at the feet of Jesus and on mission with Jesus, we won't be sitting there going, man. I blew it big time. None of us want that. Let's make sure we're taking the steps to not have that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you that your grace is abundant. We thank you that your ways are higher than our ways. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to humble ourselves before you. We take the bread and cup this morning that our hearts would be humble. That you would help us because our flesh is so incredibly weak, that you would help us, God, to not sin against you, to not grieve your Holy Spirit, to not go back under a yoke of slavery, but to live in the freedom from sin that you have bought for us at the cross. Jesus, we thank you that you took our punishment and that you strip sin of its consequence, ultimate consequence for us and of its power over us. So please help us to live in your love and in your grace and your mercy and in your power that we would not dishonor your name and that we would not be giving cause for those who don't believe in you to blaspheme. But help us to live for you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.